Amazing. Oh, forgot the stand. Wow. As I was coming up, I also, um, this cord that was attached to me got hooked on a chair, so it fell off, so it's fitting that I also forgot the stand. No worries. Hey, what a great night to be at Salt Company. Come on. <laughs> Guys, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Austin. Uh, I just hopped on staff here over the summer. Uh, it's been a joy. And yeah, just really excited, really honored to be able to bring the word and excited for this series that we're doing. We started a new series. It's called Unexpected Hope. We're going we're gonna to fly through the life of Joseph, and it's going to be sweet. Um, yeah, guys, Salt Company is really cool. College is really cool. I uh, was in your shoes at one point and was a student here at the University of Minnesota, and I have a funny story that I don't know if the staff even knows this about me, but when I first came to the U, I was a freshman, right? Salt Company planted here at the University of Minnesota. The first year that they were here, they met in this place above Northrop, actually, and it was like this weird classroom lecture space. They had the actual comfy chairs, right, with armrests and cushions. It was great. Uh, but in fact, I had, uh, I, I started off as this kind of like flaky freshman, not really coming very much, and but the first few times that I did come, uh, I actually had the perfect streak of dozing off during every single message. So that's just a fun fact about me. Um, yeah, I would fall asleep. It was darker there. The, com- the chairs were more comfortable. And frankly, I was just kind of uninterested most of the time. Um, so I say this because if there are any of you that want to take a nap while I'm speaking... You're still welcome here. Really thankful that you're here. You, you made the trek so you could take a nap in front of me. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. And if you also are the friend next to the person dozing off, we, we appreciate the little nudge to wake us back up. But honestly, you can, you can just let them sleep. They're probably just going to doze off again, so it's okay. Um, now, the actual reason I say that is because I think it's kind of funny that God decided to take the sermon snoozer and actually put him on stage and give a message. Like, isn't it funny? It's God's grace in my life. It, it's funny, though, that he would take somebody that was uninterested, flaky, doing his own thing, and raise him up to then deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's actually worth it. I... I think it's strange and kind of unexpected, frankly. And that happened in my own life. So it's unexpected, right? God does these interesting things in our lives where maybe we, not, we just don't expect the hope that he brings. And if, if God would do something in my life to take the sermon snoozer and bring about hope in my life, then maybe it's not actually so crazy to think that you might be here for a reason. God does the unexpected thing to bring hope, and actually what we're going to see in this series that we're starting through the life of Joseph is that this isn't an exception. He actually does this all the time. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. It's a true story, a historical account found in the book of Genesis. So 
You can actually open up your Bibles. If you have a Bible, we're going to be starting in chapter 37 of Genesis today. It's a true story, a, a historical account of a man from the Middle East, and it's legitimately one of the greatest stories ever written. It's got these crazy ups and downs, these wild twists and turns um, that happen through the life of Joseph, and it, it's just awesome. Guys, we love the Bible at Salt Company. We think it's sweet, and we think it's uh, uh, worth sharing and talking about week after week, and we want you to help, we want to help you have a greater appreciation for your Bible, honestly. So just want to say this before we even get started, invite you to to read the story of Joseph by yourself and, and actually open up your Bible at home and read through the story of Joseph so that when we're talking about these things, you can even have that same context as we go through. It's valuable. Okay, so, um, yeah, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 37. It's nonfiction. He was a real dude. Joseph was a real guy, real emotions, real thoughts about his life, real family, real friends, and the, the words written on the page matter. They were written down and preserved until now so that we might actually be able to see the words and, and know the real effect that it would have and could have on our life. The choice is yours whether you want to actually just ignore those words or maybe zoom in, lock in, and see what it might have to benefit your life. I recommend that. <laughs> so would you look with me at Genesis chapter 37? We're starting in verse 1. It says that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, this is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Family issues, right away. That's what we see. Did you catch it? He says he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So actually, Joseph is this young boy, and he's got a bunch of brothers. He's got 11 brothers, but actually he's the half-brother to them. So Joseph is the son of Jacob and Rachel, but it mentions that Joseph was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, different mothers to his brothers. So we refer to these total 12 men as actually a title called the patriarchs. They're pretty important people in the development of God's plan through the people of Israel. But when we look closely, we actually see a family that was not a smooth sailing ship. Now, actually, the text mentions that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons and because he was the son of his old age. So, for context, again, if we were to look back a few chapters, we would see that Jacob had those several wives, but he loved Rachel the most. And so the bummer for Jacob was that Rachel was barren. She couldn't actually have any kids. And so we see the situation arise where Jacob starts trying to have kids with these different wives. But what he's really after is a child 
with Rachel. So after many sons and a lot of time, Joseph and, or Jacob and Rachel actually do have a son, and his name is Joseph. Therefore, Joseph is the favorite child, the treasure of Jacob, his precious son that he had with Rachel. And when we fast forward 17 years, Joseph is still the favorite child. And in fact, check this out. Jacob loved Joseph so much that he got him this nice Gucci coat, right? This long coat with the delicately sewn designs, the nice colors, the freshest style. It's the top of the line. And you know that when Joseph put this on, he knew he looked good. He knew he looked good. You guys know what this is like. It's fall. The fits in the fall, they're just, they're unlike any other season. So you know what it's like when you bring out that new layer because it's cold outside, so you can start layering up and you put it on. You walk with the new confidence. You do. You know what it's like. Joseph knew what it was like to wear this Gucci coat and, and feel the love from his father, right? How would it feel to be the younger, the older brother that sees your younger brother Strutting in the Gucci coat while you're still wearing Old Navy t-shirts. You wouldn't feel good about it. You really would not feel good about it. And so it says that the brothers hated Joseph. They saw the favoritism that Jacob had toward his son. They hated him. They saw that Joseph was a little different, so they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. Are there people in your life that don't speak peacefully to you? Yeah, maybe, maybe those people are actually in your family that don't speak peacefully to you. The people that are supposed to have your back in all situations, the people that are supposed to encourage you, support you, be the closest to you, they actually look down upon you and mock you and criticize you most. Maybe college has actually been a sort of refuge for you. Or it's actually tough to go home because you don't feel the love that you maybe feel here. You maybe feel like it's an escape to be away from home. Salt Company, I want you to hear that God works in, he works through messiness, even in the family. You can find rest, actually, in the one that says he will never, for, never leave or forsake you. We see that in Joseph's circumstances, he had a messy family situation. And it's going to get much better, but it's also going to get much worse. I encourage you not to place your hope in your own circumstances, but to the one who is greater and in control of circumstances and with you in suffering. We see also in Joseph's life that one of the most critical pieces of information about him is that God was with him through all of it. God's with you. He sees you. He's a good father, and you can run to him. And just want to say this on behalf of our staff. If you just want to chat about family junk or stuff at home, stuff with roommates, relationships, come talk to us. We want to be the listening ear. We're there for you. Joseph came from a messed up family. There was favoritism, jealousy, hatred, dishonesty. But something that we're going to see is that God was present with him 
through it all, sometimes God does the unexpected things to redeem and restore broken families. And God does something interesting through the life of this family. He actually has given Joseph this really interesting gift. Okay, when we look at this text, we see that Joseph's got this interesting talent where he can actually uh, decipher dreams. He's given dreams and visions from God, and then he actually is able to decipher them in this really interesting way. And so he's a next-level dreamer. And so here we are. Joseph has actually gathered his brothers together, and he wants to tell them about his dreams. So look with me at verse 6 and 7. He says, look, I want to I tell you guys this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. It, if you don't know what a sheave is, that's okay. It's like a hay bale. It's like a hay bale for us Midwesterners. It's a big stack of grain tied up. He says, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Okay, not a great call to tell the brothers that hate you already that they're going to bow down to you. I, I don't think that that was very helpful for his relationship with his brothers. It didn't go well. In fact, his, it says that his brothers hated him all the more for his words and for his dreams. And so... Joseph decides actually to tell them another dream, but this time let's get mom and dad involved. So he gets them together, and this is verse 9. He says to his mom, his dad, and his brothers, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, that symbolism for the father and the mother, and the 11 stars, the brothers, were bowing down to me. All right. So up to this point, we have... Joseph, the golden child, with a Gucci coat, who tells his whole family that they're going to bow down to him. Okay. It's bold. And after he's told his whole family these dreams, we get a new scene where Joseph is, he's chilling at home, okay? His dad sends him out to check on the brothers who were pasturing the flock. This is interesting. The brothers were already pasturing the flock. But Joseph is back at home chilling in his Gucci coat because actually this coat was a, was a sign to this other brothers. These long sleeves, it went all the way down, a sign that he actually didn't work the same as his brothers. So this is interesting. His dad sends him out just to go check on the brothers. We saw earlier in the chapter that it made mention of Joseph bringing a bad report to his father about his brothers. So we can assume that the brothers were not expecting, not excited to see their brother coming. But nevertheless, he goes. So Joseph journeys out several miles to see his brothers that were pasturing the flock. And indeed, he does not receive a warm welcome. Before he arrives, let's look at the conversation that the brothers have with themselves. This is verse 18. It says, they saw him from afar. And before Joseph came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a, a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become 
of his dreams. Goodness sakes. Look at what hatred does. These brothers are legitimately plotting to kill Joseph. They'd always despised him, yes. But now they've hopped up to this new level of fury where they want to kill him. What brought them from hatred to premeditated murder? The quote, and we will see what will become of his dreams. When we look at the brothers' motives, we see that the brothers actually just attached the dreams way too closely to the dreamer. They hated Joseph, yes, but more so, they hated what his dreams meant for their lives. It meant submission to their younger brother. His dreams said that his brothers would be bowing down to him. This meant that Joseph would receive the honor and the praise, not themselves. They couldn't accept it. And when you can't accept the circumstances that are in front of you, you take them into your own hands. And when a person turns from someone to something, just an obstacle in the path of your glory, the only logical thing to do is actually remove the obstacle from the path, to destroy it, to kill it. So do you see how the brothers view Joseph? He was the thing that kept them from the glory that they thought they deserved. We need to be very careful that we do not view people this way. They couldn't deal with the circumstances in front of them, so they took it into their own hands. Salt Company, what is it in your life that you've taken into your own hands? Are you trying to manipulate situations so that they work in your favor? Do you refuse to take advice to slow down or, or to worry less about your schoolwork because then you think that you won't have control over your future? Maybe you don't trust people in your life because you're worried that they're going to mess up this perfectly manicured life that you've made. Or you hear the promises and the wisdom of, of God from his scripture, but you actually don't want to change your life because your plans are better. So you walk according to your own ways. You manufacture your life. You want to control your life. But it's not going to work. It doesn't work to control your life. Let me explain it like this. So one of my favorite things about living in the house that I do, I've got great roommates, and several of them are soccer fans. I'm not, I'm not much of a soccer fan historically, but it's growing on me. I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy soccer and have enjoyed watching some of the games with my friends, but sometimes I'll come into the living room, and Jacob and Raul, they'll, be, they'll have a game up on the TV, right? Every time they're watching a game, this happens. I could... I could probably guess when they're watching soccer, even if I was upstairs, because every time one of the soccer players gets tripped up, slide tackled, right, they're falling on the ground, and then they're screaming, they look like they're going to die, but promptly, every time, Jacob will go, ref, every single time, 
always looking for the yellow card, always. And when they've got the, the sweet breakaway, the opening, Jacob's got the great advice saying, finish it, bro. Yes, score the goal. A good idea, a really good idea. It's fun, right? Cheering on the team from the living room, it helps us engage with the game. We love it, we love it. But we, we also need to face the reality that those comments actually aren't impacting the game, right? They're just, they're just not. They're not going to help the ref make the right call. They're not going to give the player the encouragement to score the goal. It just doesn't work that way. You can't control your life. You have as much control over your life as a spectator does over the soccer game. So you might say, what then? When we face the moments in our life when we're so discontent or frustrated or fearful of what may happen, then how, how should we react? Guys, we can turn to the one who knows why we're facing that certain situation. God is wise. His, his ways are so much higher than ours. His thoughts, so much higher than our thoughts. So it would be of our best interest to humble ourselves under his wisdom that he knows what is best for us, actually. That he always works things together for his glory and for our good. So we can continue to actually look back at his faithfulness. God, through suffering in our lives, produces endurance. And through endurance, he produces character. And through character, he produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame. So we walk in faith that God has put us actually exactly where he wants us. Because even in suffering, God actually has purpose through it all. We are, Ephesians says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has appointed beforehand for us to walk in them. Friends, we might not be able to control our life, but we are able to know the God who is, is in control. And the path to life is through faith in him, trusting the wisdom of God who works things all together for our good and for his glory. But what we see in the story of Joseph, is that Joseph's brothers did not trust the wisdom of God. No, they took the situation into their own hands, and it got really messy. It got really messy as they began scheming to kill Joseph. The oldest brother, Reuben, actually, he knows that he's going to have to give an explanation to his father. And so he comes to Joseph's rescue. Let's look together at verse 21. It says, but when Reuben heard it, this is when he heard these, these plans to kill Joseph, he says, he rescued, rescued them out of his hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. Okay, and then Joseph comes near to his brothers, 
after this whole conversation, perhaps wishing that they might extend a warm greeting, or at least maybe not brutalize him with their words this time around. But the brothers, as he starts approaching, they begin tossing the insults on him again as he approaches, taunting him once again for his pretty coat. They push him around. They tear the coat off of his back. They throw him to the ground. And before long, Joseph is now pushed into the pit. Joseph's pushed into the pit. He's probably hitting his head, getting scraped on his way down. Think of just the adrenaline and the sadness of this moment. Coming up to the brothers, your family, who take it up a notch this time to actually push you down and put you into a pit and the brothers stand above for a few moments but it's just a few moments until they get hungry the text says that after pushing Joseph in the pit they sit down to eat see what hatred and jealousy do to the human heart it rids us of our compassion Joseph wasn't their brother anymore, but an obstacle to be destroyed. And so immediately, after pushing him into the pit, they eat. Okay, put yourself in the pit where Joseph is. It's dark. It's cold. You can't see a way out. Imagine the hopelessness. What would have been going through your mind at this moment, you can imagine the desperation, maybe holding out for the small chance that someone would come and save you, knowing that in all likelihood, there was no hope. Joseph knew that he was hated by his brothers. Why would they come save him? But then, to his surprise, a rope does fall down from the mouth of the pit. Imagine seeing that rope. As Joseph, wouldn't you run to that rope? You would grab on with all excitement and climb as fast as you could to the mouth, waiting with just joy to thank the rescuers. So Joseph did. He, he grabbed the rope. He started climbing up. And when he gets to the opening, he sees his brothers that have extended the rope down. And maybe at this moment, he, he's just so thankful that now he realizes he's surely not going to die in this pit. So he goes up to his brothers, maybe even for a hug, and on his way, arms open to get the hug, he's shoved to the side once more, pushed to the ground. This time they're not saying a word to him. And then before Joseph realizes it, he's being tied up, his hands and feet tied up by the same rope that they tossed down to rescue him. Joseph's face would shift back to one of despair at his brothers being tied up. And before Joseph can comprehend what's going on, he realizes that he's been tied to the back of a camel. He's being drugged behind this camel, and as he looks back, he sees a money bag going from an Ishmaelite slave trader into the hands of his brothers. As it turns out, while Joseph was in the pit, these Ishmaelites had entered into the brothers' view, and so the brothers saw this as an opportunity for some financial gain. 
So the spectacular sins of the brother are going to lead to Joseph's deep suffering. A boy who was lifted high in his father's house is now going to walk the dirt as a slave. As for the brothers, they sell their brother. They slaughter a goat and take this long, precious robe that belonged to Joseph and they dip they dip the robe in the goat blood. They now bring this coat before their father Jacob. They bring it to him and say, a wild animal has killed your son. After selling their brother, expecting to never see him again, they dip the coat, they bring it to their father and say, we didn't do this. Salt Company, are you honest about your rebellion against God? When you turn your back on the things that he loves, when you walk in ways that dishonor him, do you come back to him saying, Father, I've wronged you? Or do you bring your bloody evidence of your rebellion and then blame it on something else? Who is responsible for your sin? Who is responsible for the way that you talk about people behind their backs? Who is responsible for the way that you snap at your roommates? Who is responsible for the way that you lust over people on your way to class? Who is responsible for your pride and your selfishness? How could we possibly go to God and tell him that it's not our fault? How could we possibly go before God and say that we're innocent? We've made a mess. And so the question is, who's going to pay for the mess that we've made? The answer is not what you would expect. Salt Company, we can't miss this. You see this whole story is actually designed to point to someone. It's designed to point to someone outside of this story. Someone that would come much later, someone that would come appearing in many ways actually like Joseph. It's designed to point to a man who would come from the Middle East. Like Joseph, this man would come from a messy family situation. Like Joseph and his dreams, this man spoke about the kingdom of heaven, bringing visions and truths from God. Like Joseph, he was despised and rejected by men. Like Joseph, he was sold and betrayed by those he loved. Like Joseph, he too was abandoned. His name is Jesus. The perfect son of God. He's the point of this story. He's the point of all of history. And if we were to read this account of Joseph's life, and miss Jesus, we would be missing the very point of the Bible altogether. 
Jesus is everything, and he is everywhere in Scripture. The most unexpected act in the history of the world is God giving up his only son who he loves. And the son in perfect righteousness comes to this earth to live like us. He walks in the dirt of humanity. He looked like us, but he was not like us. Jesus never rebelled. In every way he was pure. He did not turn his back on God. He didn't even think of it. But righteousness in his sake, was not rewarded with comfort. The prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus in this way. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ is the greater Joseph. So where does that leave us? Because we're, we're in this story too. If Jesus is the greater Joseph, then you and me, we're the brothers. The ones filled with pride and jealousy, and hatred, and bitterness. We're the ones who plot against Joseph to kill him. We're the ones who push Joseph into the pit. We're the ones that sit down to eat right after betraying him. We are the ones that take advantage of Joseph for a little cash on the side. We are responsible from the mess of the world. And so the question remains, who's going to pay for it? 2,000 years ago, we mocked the Son of God as he carried his cross up a hill. We spat on him. We whipped him. We stripped him of his clothes. We killed him. It is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And it was necessary that Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory. He did it all for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus paid for our mess. He took the penalty for us. He bore our sins so that he could do away with them forever. This passage within Joseph's story is meant to point us to the atonement of Christ. The atonement, the payment for sin, the great reality that the innocent one, Jesus, the only innocent one, decided to take upon himself the great penalty for the guilty, and it was a great debt that we owed to him. It is the innocence of Christ which makes the suffering of Christ so breathtaking. We were the ones that put Jesus on the cross, and as Christians, we know the end of this story, that Jesus actually died, but then he rose again three days later, we know that he rose from the grave and has the final word on your sin. Yeah, he triumphed over sin and death. He did. He is the hope of the world. 
but we need to see that there is no great rejoicing over the triumph of sin and death if there's no real, if we don't sit with the fact that our sin costs something. It's a great rescue because we see that we were in great need of a rescuer. Jesus has given us hope because we were depraved. And at the end of chapter 37, we see a sliver of hope for Joseph as well, actually. Verse 36 says this, if you look with me. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites, these slave traders, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So there's actually so much to be uncovered about God's plan and God's wisdom through the story of Joseph. But we see that this placement in the house of Potiphar will actually serve as a sliver of hope for him. God did not leave him, but actually uses the suffering for his good and for the glory of God. Over and over, we see this. The unexpected hope for desperate people. That's you and me. Desperate people. Desperate for hope. Desperate for life. Desperate for a savior. So Salt Company looked to Jesus, who is the suffering servant. He came to suffer so that sinners like us would actually have a chance at life in him. Let's worship that son of suffering now. Will you pray with me? Father, we have messed up. We've betrayed you. I have betrayed you. But Lord, thank you that you have not turned your face from us. You've given us the greatest gift, Lord, your son. God, thanks for coming after us and doing away with our sin, Lord. Our mess was massive, and so you paid the massive debt. Father, I pray that you'd help us see our sin rightly. Help us be honest with the ways that we run from you, Lord, and betray you. Father, would you give us grace to turn to you and live according to your word? We want to worship you with our lives, God. Teach us how. God, I ask you that you would stir our hearts to sing. Stir our hearts to worship the God that defeated death and paid for our sin. That he, he did away with it, Father. Thank you. You are indeed worthy of our praise, God. From now until forever, we will sing of your great mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.